Before we begin, I'd like to thank our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Google, and Second Front Systems for their support of this series. Hey y'all, it's Caitlin. I just wanted to give you a quick update. So sadly, Lindsay has actually left CSIS. She's now pursuing emerging technology policymaking from a front seat inside the government. You can catch up with her on LinkedIn or Twitter. Now, because we have really busy schedules and so do our awesome guests, we actually pre-record a lot of these episodes. So if you hear Lindsay reference a project she's working on or a report she's doing for CSIS, just know that this could have been recorded a couple weeks ago. Welcome to Tech Unmanned, a CSIS podcast where we bring together technologists and policymakers to discuss the intersection of defense, national security, and emerging technologies. I'm Caitlin Johnson, Deputy Director and Fellow with the Aerospace Security Project. And I'm Lindsay Shepard, Fellow with the International Security Program. On this week's episode, we are talking all things hypersonic weapons and defenses. All right. Well, welcome to Tech and Man this week, everybody. We are so excited to have two extremely brilliant guests with us today to talk about hypersonic weapons and defenses. A really hot topic, I think, in the media and in uh, national security circles right now. And so first, I'd like to introduce Dr. Jillian Bussey. She is the director of the Joint Hypersonics Transition Office in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering. Hello, I'm glad to be here today. I'm really excited to participate, but you know, my words are my own. I don't speak for my office. Great. And Kelly Saylor is our second guest. She is an analyst in advanced technology and global security at the Congressional Research Service. Thanks, Caitlin. It's great to be here today. I should also note that I'm speaking in my personal capacity and not on behalf of the Congressional Research Service or the Library of Congress. All the caveats today. I love it. We are just lucky to have you guys with us. For hypersonic technologies and weapons and defenses, there's just a lot of buzz and hype surrounding all of this, as I said, both within the United States, but also I think as we talk about our strategic competitors, Russia and China. So Kelly, I'd really like you to kick us off and baseline this discussion, give our audience an overview on what makes something hypersonic and how hypersonic weapons and defenses function differently than maybe what we are used to today. Sure. So when we use the term hypersonic weapon as a category of weapon system, we're referring to a weapon that, first of all, travels at hypersonic speeds. So that's Mach 5 and up or five times the speed of sound or more. Uh, but in addition to that, hypersonic weapons are capable of maneuvering throughout the course of their flight. And they also fly on a depressed trajectory in comparison to ballistic missiles. So if you think of a, a ballistic missile that flies on this predictable parabolic trajectory, they're easier to track and you might have a decent sense of where they're headed. You don't get that so much with hypersonic weapons because again, they're, they're flying at a lower altitude. And so for a good chunk of their flight, they're actually flying below the line of sight detection capabilities of ground-based radar. So you're gonna start tracking them much later in their flight path than you would a ballistic missile. And that's also going to reduce your decision timeline for a response. Um, you might not be able to predict exactly where they're going. And so both of those factors um, obviously increase the challenges of defending against them. 
This is one of those times where as much as I love a podcast, I wish we were in person and doing like a live video feed, like a traditional CSIS event, because we need a whiteboard to be able to draw these out and compare and contrast. But in lieu of that, Jillian, I would love to turn to you next. Now that Kelly has given us that introduction, what are some of the broad efforts ongoing in the DOD right now? So where is the U.S. putting its focus and emphasis in this topic? So there's a number of different types of weapon systems that you could do to achieve that. One thing you can say about hypersonics is that they they bring the benefits of cruise missiles in terms of their maneuverability and unpredictability with the responsiveness of a ballistic missile. So you can have really two classes of hypersonic weapons, and, and we're pursuing both. There's the, the glide vehicles that are launched off of usually a ballistic missile booster, and they glide for a long time in the atmosphere. So those systems that we're pursuing, those would be, you know, at the advanced technology stage, the DARPA tactical boost glide. And then in terms of an operational prototype that we're developing, the Navy and the Army are developing the common hypersonic glide vehicle, which is capable of intermediate ranges. Um, the TVG is capable of more medium ranges. The Navy has the, the Navy CPS, and the Army has the LRHW. It's, it's one missile stack put on different platforms. And then you have cruise missiles, which are typically powered by some flavor of a scramjet engine, um, which is a supersonic combustion ramjet. So again, DARPA is working on an advanced technology demonstrator called Hawk. That is the hypersonic air breathing weapon concept. And then the Air Force is just started a new program called HACOM, a hypersonic attack cruise missile. Um, there's also the Sci-Fire program, which is related. Um, that's with Australia. Um, these are, are smaller, cheaper weapons that can potentially put on fourth-gen fighters. I forgot to mention there's another boost glide program. So the Air Force is taking on that tactical boost glide that DARPA is doing and, and making an operational prototype out of it. It's called Arrow, um, Air Launch Rapid Response Weapon. And then also the, the Navy is interested in cruise missiles as well. So they have the OAU Increment 2, which is looking at their, their next generation um, cruise missile. It may be hypersonic. It may not. It, things are looking like it probably will be. So to support that, there's um, a Seahawk study, so taking the DARPA Hawks and um, shortening it so it can fit up within the carrier elevator you know, box. And then um, you know, there's the Screaming Arrow solicitation that they put out. And then they've also been looking at solid ramjets to go a little bit slower. So that's the Sphere program. And then, you know, MGA is also playing in this space, but, you know, more from the defensive side. So they're developing um, a glide phase interceptor. So it seems like there's a lot of different programs going on. And, you know, sometimes when we talk about different emerging technologies and capabilities on this podcast, it's that industry is way ahead of where the department is or what the government's demand signal is. And they're trying to urge government to catch up. We did talk about quantum sensors, which was kind of the opposite. Some of these systems are only funded by government and don't have as much use in the commercial sector. Hypersonics, to me, kind of fit closer to that second bucket of it seems that Defense Department is really putting out the demand signal to industry to invest in this and maybe not as much industry coming to DOD trying to make the case for the technology that they're developing. Is that correct impression or am I off base? So it's, it's almost there. 
So one thing that's interesting is of all the programs I mentioned, the, the one that that's the furthest along is actually a government-developed design, and, and that would be um, the, the CPS Glybody. That's come out of Sandia National Labs. And so in that case, government is bringing to industry a design, and industry is taking that on. But in a lot of other ways, industry wants to do hypersonics. They're the performers on, on every other one of these vehicles. They have a lot of innovative ideas. They have some ideas that, you know, we've flown and we feel it, like the Pershing. Some of that expertise is still in the industrial base. We also get a lot of really innovative concepts that they bring to us. But the, the challenge is that we're saying we're going to do hypersonics. We're saying we need to do a lot of them. But they need the very clear demand signal in order for them to really invest. You know, we have a little bit of a chicken and egg problem in that we don't have the capacity to build uh, large numbers of hypersonic weapons, but we're not at the point where we can say exactly how many we need of, of what. The best we can do is say, trust me, it's going to happen. Then industry, you know, they want to see exactly what, and some of these things are still being competed. So it's hard for us to, you know, pick a winner, you know, spend $50 million building a facility. So it's a, it's a little bit of both, but you know, we've had a great partnership with industry, particularly small businesses um, have been a, a large part of really enabling these, these systems and, and providing new technology solutions. And we, you know, we're trying to have closer engagement, you know, holding specific engagement events. Right now, I, I could be at, you know, meeting with one of the primes, but, you know, I had a conflict. We, we try to meet with them regularly to convey what we need, our requirements, to let them know we're serious, and then they bring their great ideas. That's really interesting. It, it makes this a, a pretty unique technology set in, in kind of this broader bucket of emerging technologies that, that we've been speaking about on the series. Kelly, I can turn to you and then, and then Jillian would love to have your take as well. You've identified that there, there is a need, there is a movement forward on this technology, but we're not quite sure how much. So what is the disruptive potential or the impact of developing this technology to a usable maturity? I know, Kelly, this is something that you've also looked at, you know, and, and tracked where other analysts are looking and where the research is going. Yeah, I think a lot of this is going to depend on the types of concepts of operation that the Defense Department develops. You know, this is really sophisticated technology, but at the end of the day, technology is, is a tool for affecting the will of a commander and for achieving a military objective. And so there are a lot of potential in terms of you can target time-sensitive targets or targets that may be fleeting. But I think at the end of the day, it's just going to depend on how they're integrated into the force and the types of concepts of operation that surround them. Jillian, any follow-ups that we didn't cover there? I largely agree with that. In addition to the time sense of targets, fleeting targets, I think hypersonic weapons also allow us to fight from standoff ranges where we're facing an increasingly challenged area denial effort from our adversary. And with the kind of ranges that these systems can provide, particularly for our aircraft, it allows us to use fourth generation fighters on day one of the war. Because they don't have to go against sophisticated IAs anymore. They can just you know, stay out of the range and, you know, basically plink off targets in, in a responsive fashion. You know, these weapons aren't going to take three hours to get, you know, get there. They'll take 15, 20 minutes, which also allows you to, you know, if you're going up in, against an adversary who's shooting subsonic weapons at you, you can strike three or four times before 
they can actually strike you back. Hypersonic weapons also have the ability to, to really increase the, the fog of war because they, they come so quickly that they can, re- they can get inside people's decision-making timelines. And we're not pursuing nuclear hypersonics, but they also offer the potential for a survivable first strike. You know, it's partially why we're not pursuing them, because they can be very destabilizing if you put nukes on them. And then finally, hypersonics also provide the ability to provide a, a credible deterrence particularly against threats located deep within an adversary's country. For example, you know, if you, you were to put ground stations or ASAT weapons deep within country, you no longer need uh, a nuclear weapon to get at them if you have a hypersonic weapon that's capable of long ranges. And that also applies to our adversaries as well. That's really, I mean, all of that that you're talking about, why the U.S. is pursuing that capability, thinking about the the concerns and considerations for adversaries pursuing that capability, it goes both ways. And I think that was a, you know, a really critical picture that you just painted for us. Yes. And I'd also like to add, uh, aside from the weapons capability, hypersonics, it's a very multidisciplinary, challenging technology. But We've noticed that as people get smart in hypersonics, it does really great things for your workforce and your industrial base as well. It's one of the hardest things you can do in aeronautics. So in order to be smart about hypersonics, you need to get to a point where you're smart about a lot of aerospace technologies. And so I could see, you know, once we get our workforce and our industrial base really spun up, that it could have an effect, you know, similar, but perhaps on a, a smaller scale, that the Apollo program had in, in, in terms of our workforce and industrial base. We, I think, have brought up several policy questions that I'd love, Kelly, your opinion on. We've talked about putting nuclear weapons on hypersonics. We've talked about the budget and the concerns there, you know, shifting to great power competition, shifting our acquisition and uh, technology development towards a different adversary. Kelly, you sit you know, one foot in Congress and one foot in the research, what are the researchers and policymakers really considering when they talk about hypersonic weapons? Yeah, so analysts have raised a number of issues that policymakers might consider as they're assessing this technology. First of all is obviously, how mature is the technology and can we actually get it right? I mean, these are very sophisticated systems that we're talking about, as Jillian mentioned, they use a number of advanced technologies. And so each of those needs to be sufficiently mature and sufficiently integrated for the system to work. Also, as Jillian mentioned, there are questions related to the workforce. So you have all of these people coming together to work on hypersonic weapons from different disciplines, from material science to engineering to electronics to you know, other things. And so there are questions about whether or not we're sufficiently supporting and developing our hypersonic weapons workforce. If there are any additional programs that we should consider as we're trying to think about workforce health. Another issue is the cost of the weapons. Can we develop them at a cost that's affordable and that makes sense given mission requirements? Uh, Have we even assessed the missions for which hypersonic weapons would be optimal versus missions in which the use of a different type of weapon might be sufficient or or just cost effective? And those questions sort of also apply to hypersonic missile defense in terms of just considering both the cost and the maturity of the proposed technology, weighing those against other options, and then determining which approach makes the most sense. 
And finally, there are a number of, of questions related to our approach to arms control. And I'm not an arms control expert, so I'm not gonna go too far down that path, but there could be opportunities for policymakers to consider how hypersonic weapons might fit into existing arms control agreements and whether or not we would like to pursue new agreements, perhaps pursue multilateral arms control agreements, or if we just wanna undertake some, some kind of transparency or confidence building measures. Kelly, that's really interesting because we've we've talked about the variety of disciplines of aerospace disciplines and engineering, and you mentioned materials and computer science that go into the development of one specific system. So what are this other enabling technologies that we need to be prioritizing for the development of the technology or concept development? Are there areas that support that hypersonic development that are less mature than others? So where should we be focusing? Yeah, so I've seen analysts highlight a number of technologies that the U.S. government could potentially prioritize. Um, so for example, as I already mentioned, one candidate could be material science. So developing heat-resistant materials that could improve thermal management for hypersonic weapons, and that could enable you to develop longer range weapons that are, that are capable of withstanding extreme temperatures for longer. You could also prioritize the development of electronics that could enable you to make reductions in, in size, weight, and power requirements. One application of that might be smaller hypersonic weapons that you could in turn carry more of. So, you know, if you had a miniaturized or just a smaller hypersonic weapon, maybe you could put a whole bunch of them on a fighter jet. So that could enable you to pursue some alternative concepts of operation that you might not otherwise be able to pursue. Some analysts, uh, particularly those I think who favor missile defense options, have proposed greater uh, investments in space-based sensors that could potentially improve our ability to detect and neutralize hypersonic weapons. So that would sort of address the challenge of you know, the limitations of our current ground-based radar, which is limited by line of sight. And so that, that's what makes it harder to detect hypersonic weapons than perhaps a ballistic missile. And the last one that I'll mention is artificial intelligence. And the argument being that you could use developments in AI to improve weapons control and weapons targeting on the offensive side, but you could also potentially improve your detection and intercept capabilities on the defensive side. And Jillian, I want to ask you kind of the same question. You direct the Joint Hypersonics Transition Office, so I have a feeling that you have a really good answer to this question of other enabling technologies or you know lines of effort that you see from your position coming out of all of the different services. Yeah, sure. Um, this is, you know, a question that's near and dear to my heart because uh, our office is responsible for identifying what those enabling technologies are. So I'm not going to disagree with anything that was said. You know, everything that was said is on that list. Where we are right now is we, we know how to make hypersonics fly. You know, we have those technologies, but we need technologies that allow us to make them into effective weapons. And so that means things like having thermal protection system materials that are manufacturable and that we can manufacture at a cost and a scale and at a time that's useful to the department. And that might mean developing new materials. We need you know, to think about warheads um, in particular. You know, there's not a lot of space on a hypersonic vehicle. We, we ask them to do a lot and they're not very volumetrically efficient. So sometimes we don't maybe get as big of warheads as we'd like. 
So there's a lot of work going on in making warheads literally get more bang for the buck, you know, conformal warheads, you know, better packaging and shaping of, of warheads, better fusing. Seekers is a big one. You know, we, we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, you know, hitting time sensitive targets, fleeting targets. Often that requires having a seeker or a data link. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done in those areas. In addition, you know, to take advantage of AI and machine learning, um, which I definitely agree with, as an area that um, we could really get a lot of capability out of and we invest in for hypersonics, you need to be able to rapidly create trajectories either on board or off board so that we have systems that can, can adapt to changing requirements. We don't have an effective weapon if it takes uh, some scientists and engineers hours or days or weeks to come up with the trajectory that the weapon system is going to fly. And, and also, you know, GNC, ad ad adaptive flight controls, um, whether it be in the engine or, you know, being able to adapt as the flight conditions change and you get new trajectories on the missile defense side. Again, it goes back to seekers for both offense and defense, and radomes and apertures, uh, such that those seekers can be protected and they can see what they need to see. A few of the areas that you've mentioned that are, are supporting the development of this overall system and this overall kind of system of systems, artificial intelligence, materials, a lot of computer modeling and simulation are you know, I guess being democratized in terms of we have a variety of new entrants to the defense market outside of that like traditional defense research and development base. So I understanding that, you know, a lot of this is in the the purview of traditional federal defense R&D. Are there opportunities here to engage with new actors and new companies in the defense supplier and research and development space? Like, can we engage startups for some of these problems like developing heat resistant materials? Absolutely. We regularly hear from small businesses or startups or civilian oriented companies, the JHO, who want to present their new ideas to us, um, particularly in the area of TPS manufacturing. In the turbine engine world, they're developing carbon six for you know passenger airliners, but they need a lot of it. And so they've developed the processes to be able to manufacture them quickly. And so if we can find out that those materials work on our systems, you know, that, that's a big win. You know, things like trajectory generation, AI, machine learning, those are, as you mentioned, great areas for um, startup companies to get involved. But, you know, we're also, you know, hearing about opportunities in other areas, for example, with thermal protection systems. You know, there, there's a couple ways to approach it. And the standard way that the hypersonics community approaches it, we're, we're aerodynamics, aerospace engineers. So we want to design a thermal protection system, you know, to protect the electronic components. Well, what if you can just develop electronic components that could handle higher temperatures? That's not an approach that, you know, an aerospace engineer would, would normally think of, but there are industries, you know, gas and oil, for example, that need high temperature electronics. So we, we started looking at opportunities in those industries to see if we can leverage some of those components. And that's just one example. Kelly, can you talk us, you've written on this before, but can you talk us through some of the strategic stability arguments that are out there for hypersonics? Like how does this fit into the broader or is changing the broader security environment? Sure. So there are a couple of different schools of thought 
out there on this topic and probably a few sort of hybrid ones in between. One of them argues that because it's difficult to detect these weapons until late in their flight path, that there's going to be an accelerated timeline for response, that policymakers might feel very pressured to either launch some sort of well, essentially to launch a, an offensive response if they feel that there's a, an incoming hypersonic weapon. Uh, on top of that, hypersonic weapons are unpredictable, and so decision makers might not be able to determine a weapon's target. And that argument leads to the idea that there could be a lot of miscalculation or unintended escalation with the use of hypersonic weapons. Um, that's probably particularly the case if countries aren't sure about whether or not an incoming hypersonic weapon is nuclear. It could also be the case if they're not sure what a hypersonic weapon is targeting and perhaps their, their nuclear and conventional facilities are co-located, that could create a, a very destabilizing dynamic. But there's another school out there that says, well, actually, there's not really a lot that's new about, about hypersonic weapons from the perspective of deterrence and strategic stability. They say, you know, our competitors already have ballistic missiles. They could use them in large numbers to overwhelm our, our missile defense systems today. And so if a country was determined, they don't need to develop these fancy weapons to penetrate our, our missile defenses. They could just use you know, their ballistic missiles that they already have. And this school argues that countries don't do that because they fear that attacking us would lead to a counterattack. And so they essentially feel that hypersonic weapons will just be subject to traditional principles of deterrence the same way that we hope that ballistic missiles and, and cruise missiles that our adversaries are deterred from using them. Is there any discussion about arms control for hypersonic weapons? I mean, in the past, we have limited the amount of nuclear weapons that can be placed on a delivery system. Is that even in the cards for discussion? Or is it too hard to verify and just uh, we're maybe too far off the cliff to kind of walk back and say, you know what, as the world, this is too destabilizing? As I understand that there has been discussion of that. And I'll just caveat again, I'm, I, I'm not an arms control expert, but there have been discussions that, for example, the new START treaty, which is the, the arms control treaty between the United States and Russia, that it doesn't currently cover weapons that fly on a ballistic trajectory for less than 50% than of their flight. So that would include hypersonic glide vehicles and hypersonic cruise missiles. But there is a mechanism by which countries can essentially renegotiate that provision or request that it be revisited. So, you know, New START expires in, in 2026. So that might be one mechanism that countries could explore. And then again, others have proposed that we do not keep this as an arms control approach between the United States and Russia, but that we open up the agreement to other countries, for example, and most importantly, probably China, though there, I have not seen uh, an indication that China would be necessarily open to such an agreement. And then finally, yeah, there's, there's still just, well, in the absence of, you know, a, an international arms control agreement, perhaps we can just pursue, you know, these transparency and competence building measures where we exchange some type of weapons data or, or give each other sort of inspection opportunities. So those are a few approaches that could be considered. It's helpful to my sanity to know that we're at least considering it. <laughs> it's 
So I want to kind of combine two questions and talk to you both about how the government can overcome some of these hurdles to maturity. We've heard some of them from the discussion earlier. And what kind of challenges are like next on the docket to be addressed to building hypersonic technologies, bringing them into maturity and putting them onto to systems to get them into the field and into the, the hands of our warfighters? So first, I'll identify some of the challenges. I think the biggest one is just resources. You know, not just money, but access to facilities. There's a, a lot of, I, I mentioned a lot of programs. And then on top of that, we have our nuclear modernization and we have missile defense. They, those systems fly at hypersonic seas as well. And so they're all going in a lot of the same ground and flight test ranges. So we, we certainly have a capacity problem. And then we, we also have, we just don't have enough people to do all the things that, that we need to do. Aside from the resources, we have a challenge with risk tolerance. A lot is expected of us, but we haven't been flying as often as we need to. And when we fly, we put too many expectations on our flight test, so that we try to do too much. And then when we fail, you know, we don't tolerate the risk. So we need to flight test early. We need to flight test often, not just to, to learn, but it also I, I think that we are kind of out of, we're out of practice. We haven't been flying at hypersonic speeds as often as we need to. And so when that happens, when you go, go to flight test, you make systems engineering mistakes. And then you, you know, you have flight test failures. And then people start asking questions. Well, why doesn't hypersonics work? And it's because we're not allowing ourselves to learn and, and fail for the right reasons and, you know, do low-cost flight testing. But ways that we can fix some of these issues, so at the, the GHO, we're focused on expanding the workforce all the way from reaching people in middle school and get them interested in the STEM to universities, getting graduate students working on the right kind of problems so they'll come work for um, the government or the industry team in hypersonics to making sure that the engineers in our workforce, you know, if they're not hypersonics experts, they can learn about hypersonics and then start working on programs already with a, a knowledge of that. On the testing and evaluation side, I know the Test Research Management Center is investing in scramjet propulsion facilities as well as art jets to do uh, materials testing, as well as alternative solutions for some of our, our jam-packed long, long-range flight test ranges, making those flight tests cheaper and, you know, having more, more ranges in terms of, you know, getting the, the kinks out and, and learning more in flight testing. You know, Sandy with NS, uh, Naval Service Warfare Center Crane are flight testing with a you know, sounding rocket you know, a rapid pace of flight testing, it's done cheaply, it's a way to mature technologies and get them ready to go on those big expensive flight tests where they've already been tested out. We don't have to worry about them. Kelly, what, same question. What is our, what is our biggest hurdle? Yeah. Um, so I think in addition to doing some of these cost and, and technical assessments, or at risk of sounding like a broken record, I think you know, it will be really essential for government to identify concepts of operations for hypersonic weapons and, and figure out how to integrate hypersonic technology into the force structure. I think you know, the, the standard example that I think a lot of people go to when we're thinking about the importance of concepts of operation is thinking about World War II and this fact that both sides had radios and both sides had tanks 
But at the outset, only the Germans had figured out that if you put the radios in the tanks, you can be more agile and you can actually achieve an operational advantage. I think that same approach is, um, in my mind, what's going to be one of the key factors in our ability to leverage hypersonic weapons in the future. It'll be sort of both the integration of those weapons into the force structure, the encouragement of the uh, experimentation, the acceptance of failure, and the development of these associated concepts of operation. Is there anything else we missed? You two are the experts. Is there any work you want to highlight or something you want to reemphasize to our audience and have the last word? Yeah, if we're going to be able to defend our interests and defend our allies and, you know, live in the kind of world that shares our values, where our values are, are dominant over values that I don't think we want to live under, I think it's important that we have the ability to, you know, essentially operate wherever we need to operate, to, to be able to fight against our peer competitors in a way such that they'll never begin the fight in the first place because they know that they'll lose. And hypersonic weapons are, are crucial to that strategy. You know, in order for us to, to hit the targets we need to hit and, you know, defend our, our key allies, specifically in the Pacific, we, we can't get there without hypersonic weapons. A lot of people talk about these being really expensive, really hard to do. They're not. They're expensive now because they're one-off demos that use exotic materials that we've not, you know, really driven out the, the manufacturing processes. But, you know, once we start cranking them out in significant numbers, the hypersonic cruise missiles, and it costs about the, a little bit more than a tomahawk. But when you do the analysis and you look at the cost of killing some of the targets we need to kill and the cost of the, the assets that we lose in fighting the way we're fighting today um, without hypersonic weapons, the larger price tag more than makes up for it. You know, you can't put price tag on... The, the cost of an airman or a sailor. And you can put a pretty high price tag on the cost of a, a downed B-52 or F-35 or definitely a U.S. aircraft carrier. We can develop these weapons. We know how to fly at hypersonic speeds. We just need to get it done. Kelly, same to you. I know in addition to hypersonic systems, you also do a lot of research um, and writing on other emerging technologies. So anything we didn't touch on today or upcoming work that you'd like to highlight for the audience? No, this is, I think this has been great. DOD, from my perspective, certainly has its work cut out for it in terms of developing this technology at a price point that makes sense and figuring out how to integrate that into the force and leverage it to achieve an operational advantage. So I look forward to seeing how that will play out. I think next up for me at CRS is directed energy. So if folks are interested in that, stay tuned. Well, Lindsay, I thought that was a really interesting discussion. I think there are a lot of things here for us to dive deeper on and pick apart. Something for me was the fact that hypersonic weapons are here, question mark. The way Jillian described it made it seem like we're halfway, we're beyond halfway to the finish line. We're close. We just need a couple of the resource problems to be fixed. And what I found was really interesting as well was She's not just talking about money. She's talking about things like flight testing and range availability, the workforce, all of these other things that we kind of hear in some of the other podcasts that we do, but have really come to a head and maybe holding this technology back for the United States. 
Yeah, I thought we touched on a lot of different things. First, I think let's, you know, dive into the testing, which I think is a really interesting example of like how you have a bottleneck in the system. And so like Jillian was saying, and like Kelly was talking about, some of these technologies are mature. We've had scramjets for years. We know how they work. But putting all of the things together onto one vehicle is difficult and we haven't done that. And so you're thinking through, do I have, you know, the right materials to withstand that level of heat that's generated? Do I have the right communication systems that can actually communicate and deal with the uh, shock waves and the shock cone that forms around it? That's not exactly like an easy barrier for comms to permeate. Do you have the controls that can control the maneuverability of the vehicle? And I think there's two interesting approaches to testing that have kind of panned out in this field. So you have the one approach, which sounds like what we've been doing to date, which is build the full vehicle with all of the components together, and we're going to test that one vehicle. And that's where if you think back to like the news that we've seen and the articles we've seen, typically they fail and you're learning from the failure, but putting together that test vehicle is so expensive because you're building the whole thing. And so now people are starting to think about, well, how do we bring down the barriers and access to hypersonic testing, which I think is an interesting theme that we've hit on this podcast is how do we drive down barriers to access? And so, you know, for for all the the non-aerospace engineers out there, you know, you'll do a lot of testing in flight tunnels and in wind tunnels. That's really difficult with hypersonic speeds. So you actually just need to have access to hypersonic flight conditions to develop the things like the control systems. And so how do we think about driving down the barriers to access to hypersonic flight test conditions so that we can work on developing things like the controls and the components. And then perhaps once you do that in kind of a segmented approach, then go build your big flight test vehicle. But Jillian's absolutely right. Like we need more access to testing to mature the technology, but building the vehicles to test them once and then have them fail is really expensive. So I do think there is that kind of money problem of how do you keep building the test vehicles so that we can mature the technology? Well, and access to ranges themselves. Not a lot of ranges in the United States, testing ranges for these experimental technologies are suited for hypersonic testing. They're either not big enough or they're you know too close to population centers. Whatever the reason is, there might not, even though let's say we have 10 ranges, Maybe only one or two are really suitable to be able to test. And then you have all of these different programs that Jillian laid out. I mean, there were like 10 of them ongoing, wanting to test in the same place at the same time and competing with other programs. Yeah. One thing that kind of popped into my head as we were talking about this is you hear a lot in defense and national security circles about the, I guess, relative maturity of the Russian and Chinese programs relative to the United States but they would still have the same testing problems. And I think this is something I'm going to have to go investigate once we wrap up is what did that testing program look like? Or if it wasn't as observable or perhaps there weren't as many tests, then are the stories and are the analyses that we're seeing of those programs, like how much water does that actually hold? Because everybody is having to deal with this testing challenge to mature the technologies and to mature the vehicles. But that's not to say that it isn't a threat. And I think is a great segue into 
Another part of this that we talked about was just all the strategic stability considerations and how do you integrate these new weapons into existing concepts of operation or CONOPS. I think, you know, we heard that that uh, acronym thrown around a little bit in this episode and how much of that is just really unknown in terms of where do we bring in this new technology and, and where does it go? Yeah, I, I agree. I think that was a really interesting thing for me to start thinking about as well, because we have a lot of the similar conversations in the space domain of new technologies in space and how do we use space differently And when you think of the current picture of stability, and that is really foundational from the Cold War and all of the arms control agreements that came there. When we talk about strategic stability, that's probably about what we're talking about. It used to be nuclear, and that was it. And now there are all of these other emerging technologies, like hypersonic weapons, like space, that are throwing pebbles into this pond and creating bigger questions and ripple effects that we have to think about. And for hypersonic weapons, it's not just the fact that they're super maneuverable, they're less predictable, they're not as easily tracked. Obviously, they're super fast. It's also what is on them and how do we know and verify what is on them. And Kelly talked about this for a bit of making sure that it's not nuclear and that it's just conventional, but also what is okay to attack with a hypersonic weapon and what conditions is it better to attack with a hypersonic weapon than literally anything else that we have in our arsenal. These kind of questions only get answered either in the field. It's like when these weapons are deployed and being used or being thought about by commanders who live in these situations all the time. And so until we get to that, it's really hard to say because we're just kind of talking hypothetical. Yeah, I do think it's really interesting to see how much of this is still unknown. And you'll see debates among international security scholars that I think we talked about in the episode of, you know, one camp says that these are just weapons like other missiles. They go a little bit faster. They're a little bit more maneuverable, but ultimately they won't make a difference. And then there's another argument that these will actually be destabilizing. And that these will change the way that nations relate to each other from the security perspective. And so much of this is, you know, I think both arguments are convincing. And unfortunately, this is why I would be a terrible talking head on a news program, because I'm like, oh, that's a good argument. That's a good argument. And it's just really interesting that it's unknown. And I guess we'll have to see how it goes. And it for better or for worse, it seems like nations are moving ahead with hypersonic weapon development. We heard, you know, the variety of programs within the U.S. that Jillian talked about. And we also kind of referenced the focus from Russia and China on building their own programs. So it sounds like while these questions are unknown right now and we're starting to think through from a academic perspective and a policy perspective of what are the implications Will this just be another weapon? Will it have a measurable change in stability? And it kind of sounds like we're going to find out anyway, because we are moving ahead. As we wrap up this week's episode, I'd like to again thank our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Google, and Second Front Systems for their support of Tech Unmanned. Visit our show page at csis.org slash techunman for show notes, more about our guests, 
and probably everything that Kelly Saylor has written on this subject. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TechUnmanPod. And don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, and review this series wherever you listen to podcasts. We will see you in two weeks.